We're spending the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show talking about a book that you may have heard being reviewed on NPR's Fresh Air. Uh, Marine Corrigan is very fond of the book that we're going to be focusing on, and I'm fond of it as well. It's titled, Don't Make Me Pull Over, An Informal History of the Family Road Trip. And it's written by someone who uh, grew up in Elm Grove, Wisconsin, and uh, makes his home now in Menominee Falls. So uh, nearly in our backyard. And Richard Rattay actually grew up roughly the same time that I did and remembers his family's road trips in the 1970s. And uh, anybody roughly our age is going to find all kinds of amazing sort of jars of jarring of, of memories long forgotten. At least that was one of the pleasures that I had in, in, in reading this book. And Richard Rattay, in looking back at kind of the heyday of the family car vacation, uh, touches on all kinds of different facets of the experience. And so he's been really thorough, really meticulous in kind of thinking about all of the different elements that were... Uh, such a memorable part of those long family vacations in the car that uh, so many of us, at least for the most part, fondly remember. Uh, the book is uh, really a delight start to finish. It's published by Scribner. Again, it's titled Don't Make Me Pull Over, An Informal History of the Family Road Trip. And uh, Richard Rattay, we welcome you to the morning show. Well, thank you, Greg. Pleasure to, to be here with you. Really happy to have you here. Ahead of us talking specifically about the book, let's uh, let's get a little capsule biography of uh, of your life growing up uh, in uh, in in Wisconsin and the kind of work that you've done ahead of this uh, this book, which I know is kind of an exciting new chapter in uh, in your career. Yeah, well, you know, I know it's going to shock you, Greg, but, uh, you know, the idea for a a book about family vacations actually occurred to me while on a family vacation. Now, my dirty little secret is that time it was not a road trip. We were actually uh, on a special vacation celebrating a special anniversary in Punta Cana with our kids. And uh, I looked over at my eight-year-old and six-year-old, and I got back to thinking about, you know, what my life was like when I was their age and traveling the highways of 1970s America with my siblings and my parents, and it really occurred to me what a you know profound set of experiences those travels really were. I mean, they gave me some of my fondest childhood memories. They broadened my horizons in so many ways. Of course, as a you know a young boy uh, getting to travel to different areas of the country to taste different foods, to hear the different ways that that people spoke, um, it was really eye opening to me. Uh, And, you know, those long hours together on the road, you know, having to make compromises and negotiations and and go through all the squabbles that you go through on the road. Uh, Ultimately, I felt it really brought me closer to to my siblings and shaped my relationships with my parents for really a lifetime. But it also occurred to me how little I knew about how that great American road trip experience really came to be. I mean, I, I really had very little idea about how America got its interstate highways, how we got things like, you know, cruise control and fuzz busters and eight-track tape decks and the Mad Libs that we played and AAA triptychs, or even why our family station wagon had fake wood paneling on the sides. So when I got home from that that trip in 2011, um, I spent about a year over here in the Brookfield Public Library uh, reading, you know, one book after another and chasing, you know, one rabbit down a hole after another. And I, I just found so many interesting stories and anecdotes and historical nuggets. Um, I knew I had the stuff to write a great book. And so, you know, I've been a writer all of my life. Um, I've uh, had a career in advertising for the last 25 years as a copywriter and creative director. Um, and, you know, I wanted a chance to, to write something different, to write something, you know, long form as opposed to the, you know, 30 second TV commercials and 60 second radio spots and short ads that I'd written all my career. So I sat down to uh, I used all my research and sat down to write a book, which kind of combined some of my family's experiences out on the road with some of this great history that I found. And the result was don't make me pull don't make me pull over. It's a great book. I want us to uh, set a little historical context here. And this was something that I, I really absolutely did not know 
or if I ever knew this, I'd certainly had had forgotten it. And that's the fact that we are talking uh, about primarily the 1970s. Uh, that is, that's when you and your mm-hmm. family took all of these road trips. And it turns out that's when all of us, that is American families, started taking numerous and lengthy road trips. Uh, yeah, what was going what on? How did... I, I, I was just going to say, I think the 1970s were kind of the tail end of things. It really kind of goes back to the 1950s and the 60s right. uh, as well. That you know, I, I trace uh, in my book, I trace the the roots of the big family road travel boom to really World War II because it was, uh, you know, the draft and enlistment for World War II that whisked all these young men uh, off their farms and out of their urban neighborhoods and sent them off to train in distant areas of the country, places like California, Texas, Florida. Uh, There was over 170 military installations in Florida, so the vast majority of of young men were, were trained for combat in Florida, and of course they had downtime. Um, and chances to experience uh, Florida beaches and beautiful weather. So, you know, after the war, many of these young men, you know, kind of had that that travel bug because that for many of these young men, that was their first time seeing parts of America beyond their familiar surroundings, and they they wanted to see more. Of course, they were also at a time in their lives where they were starting families, um, and, you know, that was, of course, the, the start of the baby boom. Uh, and it was also a time of tremendous economic prosperity in America. Uh, so these, these young men had new families with lots of kids. They had disposable money and time. And the result was this, this big travel boom. Hmm. And, of course, it, I, I think what I meant to say but didn't say it quite right is that we really reached the peak of that by the 1970s. In fact, you tell us... Mm-hmm. Uh, Eighty percent of working Americans took vacations in 1970 compared to just 60 percent two decades earlier. So we're taking more vacations. And then on top of it, the vast majority of those vacations are 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 taken uh, in in, in the family car. And part of that is something that I, I think a lot of people have forgotten that once upon a time it was really prohibitively expensive for most Americans yep. to travel by plane. Explain the difference between then and now. Yeah, you know, a, a lot of people like to look back to the 1950s and the 60s as kind of the golden era of air travel as well, because, you know, you had stewardesses, and I apologize for my dogs barking in the background. Hopefully. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> they will stop soon. Um but, uh, you know, it was only a golden era of, of air travel for those who had the gold, the wealthy and people, you know, traveling on corporate expense accounts. Back then, uh, the average airfares that we pay today were three to eight times more expensive back then. Um, so really, uh, as you said, it was prohibitively expensive for, for families and especially larger families with kids to even consider air travel. Um, and on the flip side, you know, of course, uh, American factories had kind of refined their production techniques during World War II. They became extremely good at churning out vast numbers uh, of economically priced automobiles uh, by uh, 1975. I'm sorry, uh, by hmm, what is my number here? Uh, by 1960, 77% of American families owned at least one car. And on the flip side of that, by 1975, four in five Americans had never traveled by plane. So you can see that you know Americans were really turning to the automobile as their means of, of seeing more of the country and, and traveling off to some of these great destinations. Hmm. You say something really uh, interesting about your father in the, uh, the, the chapter that is devoted to the actual cars that people were driving back then. Mm-hmm. And you say something to the effect that that your dad was uh, not somebody to engage in a whole lot of extravagances, but for him, uh, maybe his one and only uh, big extravagance was the car he drove. Tell us yeah. about that. Well, he, he loved those, you know, luxury land yachts of the 1970s. I mean, we had cars and we traveled in cars like on a 1975 Lincoln Continental Town Car, which stretched almost 19 feet long. So, <laughs> you know, an incredibly uh, long-sized car. 
Uh, we also had like an old 98 Regency and, and, um, and for a, a few of those trips, we also had the traditional, I think it was mandatory that every family have a, a Ford Country Squire station wagon at some point uh, in the 1970s. But yeah, it was one of the few luxuries that, that he allowed himself. He was a, a, a salesman and found himself having to um, kind of swim in the same circles as uh, you know some of these higher level executives who bought the kind of products that he sold. So he wanted to kind of fit in with the, you know, his peer group there. Uh, so even though we lived in a, a fairly modest house, he, he enjoyed buying these luxury automobiles that had, you know, all the amenities. So right. uh, you know, we had the eight track tape decks, you know, as soon as those came out and he had a, one of those uh, 1974 old Toronados that was among the first cars, if not the first car with, with front wheel drive. Uh, and, uh, you know, they had these big engines. That Toro had a 455-inch uh, cubic inch engine. So <laughs> the way he sold it to my mother was that, you know, oh, but it's got the, the front-wheel drive. It's going to keep us so safe if we encounter any rain or snow while out on our road trips. And, you know, it's all about safety. <laughs> but, uh, you know, back then, the size of a car was considered its primary safety feature, right? You know, the bigger the bigger car wins in any kind of collision is what people believed back then. And to a certain extent, it actually was true. Um, but, you know, obviously there were other things that came into play. It was more about the, the secondary collisions of, you know, people after, after uh, actually striking an object and how well they were belted in um, to, you know, that really helped prevent injuries and, you know, of course, at that time, we didn't have any of the safe, the seatbelt laws that we uh, do today. You know, I was riding around up on the rear window shelf or in that top-up back seat uh, of our, our, our station wagon, those rear-facing seats that uh, induced nausea in so many of us of a certain age. <laughs> you say at one point, uh, after describing this uh this uh, the the kind of cars that your dad liked to drive and uh, big luxury automobiles with every f- fancy uh, amenity it, it it could have. You write at one point the truth is my dad may have loved his cars a little too much. Yeah, what do you mean yeah. by that? Oh, because he 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 bought the kind that were outfitted with uh, you know all the the, the trimmings. Uh, the white wall tires, the big hood ornaments on the front, the double pinstriping along the sides, um, the uh, carriage top roof was, you know, a, a feature back then. Opera windows in the rear post in the in the rear seat. Uh, so, you know, not only did they have all the devices in the in the front uh, instrument board, but uh, you know, they they looked pretty uh, spiffy on on the outside as well. I think I describe it in the book as. Our cars looked like the, the kind of vehicles driven by the perps being chased down regularly by Starsky and Hutch on, you know, on TV every week. <laughs> mm. Funny. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Richard Rattay. We're talking about his book, Don't Make Me Pull Over, an informal history of the family road trip. Richard Rattay is looking back at the family vacations by automobile that he remembers from the 1970s, but his book is about a lot more than that, beyond his really remarkably specific memories of his own experiences out on the road. He also shares all kinds of uh, of information about sort of how the American family road trip took shape uh, over the course of uh, of many, many years. I want to explore a little bit of, of that kind of grander canvas, if, if, if I may, sure. in the second chapter of the book called Pioneers of the Pavement. Uh, you talk about the creation of the interstate highway system uh, mm-hmm. in in our country, and uh, ahead of that, you you talk about how for quite a long time in America uh, we were really lagging behind when it yeah. came to 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 roads. You write because our country uh, is so young, so huge, and so generously endowed with every type of obstacle to road construction. Perilous mountain ranges, mighty forests, yawning canyons, baking deserts, boundless plains, impenetrable swamps, and rampaging rivers. America would lag far behind other nations in the development of a coordinated system of high-speed highways to connect its sprawling expanse. I'd never stop to think about that. I've actually done some reading about our our road system and so on, uh, but had never really thought about 
why we were so slow to create the kind of highway system that a country like ours uh, really needed. Tell us some more about kind of that slow process by which a proper road system finally began to take shape. Yeah, I mean, well into the you know 1880s and 1890s, basically all America had was a uh, a system of of dirt roads that turned to mud, and and even those roads were only you know built to connect one town to the next. Um, so you know if you were traveling of any distance, it was an arduous journey, uh, and it would take you a long time. And really, what precipitated um, the first paved roads in America wasn't the automobile at all. It was actually bicycles. There was a, a major bicycling craze in the late 1880s and 1890s um, as uh, safety bicycles were invented and developed. Uh, safety bicycles uh, had, you know, uh, equal-sized wheels in rear, in the rear and the front, as opposed to the penny farthing bicycles, which, of course, are those big high-wheeled bicycles that we often associate, you know, with the the eighteen hundreds. Right, um, with the where the front cool. wheel is huge and the back wheel is small. Right. And uh, yeah. And 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 tell us what changed about the whole experience of riding a bicycle when they went to this new design of the so-called safety bicycle. Well, it really democratized bicycles because when you were riding with the, the riders of those very high-wheeled bikes were mostly young, thrill-seeking young men. You know, this was a, a, a new um, kind of novel kind of invention, and uh, it, it was incredibly dangerous. If you fell off one of those high-wheeled bicycles, you know, you were liable to, to break a bone or suffer a, a, a pretty big injury. So once safety bicycles came along, uh, women felt uh, more at liberty to ride them. Older folks uh, felt more at liberty to ride them. And so, like I said, it kind of democratized the riding of bicycles. And and so bicycles became incredibly popular, uh, more appealing to you know a wider demographic. Um, and that precipitated the first good roads movement. You had all these bicycling clubs clamoring for better roads. Uh, on which to ride those bicycles, and that meant uh, they wanted more paved roads that they could ride you know, further out and away from cities. Um, pretty soon, as we got into the late 1890s and early 1900s, then automobiles kind of took over. That became the new uh, machine appealing to, to thrill-seekers. Now, automobiles were incredibly expensive. It, it, you know, it was mostly the wealthy uh, that were buying them, um, but they did become popular among that set. And, of course, these are influential individuals, and they kind of assumed control of that good roads movement. Uh, and they were fairly influential in uh, affecting uh, you know, local lawmakers and, and uh, politicians and, and getting more paved roads built. Hmm. Um, as cars then, you know, as Henry Ford kind of brought down the, the cost of cars with his mass production techniques, uh, and and more uh, average Americans were were able to buy them. Then uh, you saw more momentum and more people wanting to travel further and have better roads on which to uh, drive their cars. And that's kind of what uh, it was the initial impetus for building better paved roads in America. Right. You uh, you write in, in in very nice detail about kind of how this all sort of took shape, including some of the huge road. Uh, races that uh, took place and cross-country races very, very mm-hmm. early, uh, mm-hmm. not long after the, the automobile had been invented to, to help sort of underscore the need for better roads in our, in our yeah. country. You also talk about how uh, there were certain logistical matters that were a real problem as roads began to be built. Uh, namely how to number them, how to identify them, and then for people to know where the heck to go. I mean, yeah. uh, there obviously were not what we think of as roadmaps uh, in those those early years. You mentioned something right. in particular called blue books that were often right. the best that somebody could do. What were the blue books about? Yeah, you know, it was crazy, but, you know, it was basically, that was kind of like user-generated content back then, right? People would submit um, the, the locals who lived in areas would submit their local directions as to how to proceed from one town to another. So a traveler might be out on the road, uh, and they're, they're looking to reference their blue book, and the, the directions they are referencing might be as simple as, you know, look for the giant oak tree on the right, and, and that's where you take your left. Or, 
you know, uh, look for a stream on the, on the left, and that's where, you know, uh, you come to a fork in the road and you take the right side of the fork. And sometimes they had very simple spare photographs with, with arrows, like hand-drawn on the photographs, um, basically directing you which way to turn. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> if, a, if an ambitious beaver moved a tree or, uh, you know, lightning struck a tree, uh, and all of a sudden it wasn't there anymore. Of course, tra- travelers could become hopelessly lost if they were relying on a blue book to tell them which way to go. Really, really fascinating stuff. And, of course, your book goes on to explore some of the ways in which what we uh, now call the interstate uh, highway system uh, eventually uh, took shape and really changed everything. That's that that's for sure. Mm-hmm. In, in, the, uh, in the chapter that... Uh, explores uh some of of, of 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 in the chapter called hey where's everybody going you uh you mention uh something called auto camping and that's a term mm-hmm. that has yep. all but disappeared but it's really kind of fun to look back at this auto camping which you say was really just trespassing with a car Correct. <laughs> explain to our listeners who've never even heard this term or who have completely forgotten it what we're talking about with auto camping yeah, there was an initial uh, road travel craze in the 1920s as, as cars got more, uh, you know, uh, as average families were able to purchase automobiles more re- re- readily. Um, and they would hop in their cars and they would travel the, the countryside. And basically, uh, you know, when night came, they would simply pull off the road wherever they found a nice clearing or, a, you know, a, a pleasant spot to stop. Or, or if they were in dire straits, just in a farmer's field. They would pull over and pop a tent out of their trunk or they'd sleep in the car and they'd kind of just sleep, um, you know, wherever they could find a, a convenient stop. Um, pretty soon, uh, farmers and, and property holders along some of the more popular roadways got really tired of people just, uh, you know, basically squatting in their, on their property at night and squatting in their bushes in the morning, <laughs> as I'm sure we could all understand. So uh, some of these uh, municipalities began to set up formal camps for them uh, to uh, park at and stay overnight. Um, Then private entrepreneurs saw how popular that these municipal camps were becoming. So they began to set up uh, more formal tourist courts, which were just very spare huts with spare amenities, just a you know, a bed and a, a roof over the head of the traveler um, who would pay a small fee, of course, to, to stay at these tourist courts. Uh, and then it wasn't really until the, the 1950s and a man by the name of Charles Kemmons Wilson um, that we, we got more towards motels. Uh, Charles Kemmons Wilson had six kids. He was, a, he was already a wealthy man by this point in, in his life. He'd made money by owning a series of movie chains and, and construction. He was a self-made uh, millionaire. And, and he was a man I think my dad would have gotten along with because uh, he wasn't about to pay the, the exorbitant rates that hotels charged in downtown cities. So he took off with his six kids and wife from Memphis uh, to, on their way to Washington, D.C., um, and he was horrified by the accommodations that he found were available to him at these tourist courts. They were kind of seedy establishments run down. They attracted um, a, a seedy crowd, and they just weren't proper places for uh, nice American families to stay at. So when he returned from that trip, he vowed to his wife. He said, you know what, I think there's a real place for uh, a motel chain that caters to to nice American traveling families um, and that offered a, a, a fair price that wouldn't charge people, uh, you know, surcharges for each one of his kids or their kids, which he was incredibly upset with. Of course, as, as a father of six children, those surcharges added up to, to more than the flat fee that he paid for the room to begin with. Um, but so he wanted to create a chain that offered basic amenities like air conditioning, color TV, uh, swimming pool, and just nice clean rooms. And of course, that chain became Holiday Inn. <laughs> and later in your book, uh, in in a chapter called In and Out, uh, you not only talk about the creation of Holiday Inn, but then talk about uh, a move that that chain made some years later to create something called the Holly Dome. 
Yeah. And oh, yeah. Uh, you, you, you say the Holly Dome captured the spirit of the 70s like nothing else. Everything about it was artificial, tacky, excessive, cheap, haphazardly laid out, and questionably constructed. And really, that was its charm. Tell oh. us why Holiday Inn started creating these Holly Domes and remind us of what they sort of looked like and felt like. Yeah, well, they were trying to create a competitive advantage. And one of the advantages that Holiday Inns had uh, early on was that they uh, that uh, Charles Cummins Wilson was a big believer in building swimming pools as an attraction to get families to stay at his motels. Um, but then everybody started, all these independent operators started building swimming pools. Uh, and so the next step, of course, uh, for Holiday Inn was simply to put a roof over their pool and kind of enclose that interior court. Another problem that many um, motel operators were having at that time is, you know, of course, motels had all had doors uh, from their rooms facing out towards the parking lot. Uh, And that used to be an advantage that used to be seen as a benefit by people who stayed at motels because you could walk directly into your room from your car. Uh, but gradually over time, people started realizing, oh, yeah, when the when the door opens out to the parking lot like that, you have uh, all these uh, fumes from the cars that kind of come into the room. Plus, the guests didn't have to, to pass a, a front desk. Uh, so they became, of course, the sites for many illicit affairs and illegal activities. And once again, these motels started going down the road of kind of catering to uh, a seedier crowd. And that's not what Holiday Inn wanted. Again, they wanted to to cater to nice American families. Uh, So instead, in some of these uh, remote locations, the the holodomes that weren't, um, you know, built from the, the ground up to be a holodome, um, they, they changed the, the, the doors from facing the outside to facing the inside to a central court that would open up into this nice, uh, you know, atrium area with a swimming pool. And you'd have clusters of, of video games, which, of course, was extremely appealing to me as a you know, eight, 10 year old. Um, that was the first thing that, that I looked for. And that's that's basically what how I rated, <laughs> you know, how good a motel was, was by how good their their game room was and and of course the arcade games that you would find within those game rooms right Um, and there's something else that's kind of a paradise you know they were they offered kind of a vacation within a vacation for traveling families absolutely and i'm glad you mentioned the thing about video games because you i think you make a really good observation uh and it reminds us it takes us back to the day when this was something brand new I mean, in a way that, I mean, now it's such a pervasive part of our culture. You write, it would be almost impossible to overstate the importance of video games to an elementary school kid in the 70s. Before my friends and I began noticing the merits of the opposite sex, video games occupied our every waking thought. Video games and my generation were coming of age at the same time. And like best friends growing up next door to each other, we made an inseparable pair. It was a relationship few outside our peer group understood. Parents didn't get it. Even my brothers, just seven and eight years older than I, didn't get it. And really, that's what made the connection we shared with video games all the more special. And, of course, it's so interesting to think about the fact that you are talking about, in a sense, a really brief moment in time when video games are first emerging, first exerting their sort of magical hold on on, Mm -hmm. on young people for the very first time. And there's all kinds of other people around who have no idea really what this is all about, which made it for you, for instance, all the more special and all the more irresistible. That's right. Yeah, And we're talking about the most primitive of video games here, too. Of course, Pong kind of got things going. Uh, Pong, of course, invented by uh, Atari, and then a little bit later on, uh, Space Invaders kind of took over as well. So those were the, you know, the, the real popular games that really started the video game phenomenon. And beyond just, uh, you know, these video games uh, coming out in game rooms and, and local arcades, uh, we also had the first of the, the handheld kind of uh, electronic games as well. One of my favorites was, of course, Mattel Electronic Football, um, which, you know, had a game screen about the size of a stick of gum. You were a running back that was, you know, denoted by a bright red dash, and, and you were trying to elude tacklers that were just slightly le- less bright red dashes. You know, so these are the most primitive of, of games that we played. Um, but, I, man, I would play that electronic football game in the car all the time. 
Um, but you know, that, that was for, for those of us of a certain age, that, that was our, our first taste of this electronic rush, which of course became this huge video game phenomenon and continues to this day. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Richard Rattay about his new book, Don't Make Me Pull Over, the in, an informal history of the family road trip. He is looking back to the 1970s, which in many ways was the heyday of family car trips that began shortly after World War II and then to some extent uh, not not vanished, but, but certainly receded in importance as uh, airplane travel became much more accessible and affordable to uh, to more and more American families. But once upon a time, if you and your family wanted to go someplace on vacation, you piled into the family car and you drove there. Um, Richard Rattay, I think it would be interesting for us to just pause for a moment and switch to the personal and describe what family vacations were like for you and your siblings and, and your parents. Typically, yeah. when did they happen? Where did you go? And mm-hmm. how would you all entertain yourselves over the course of these vacations? Yeah, well, first of all, as far as who was in the car, I was the youngest of four siblings by by a good margin. I was uh, what my mom called uh, their extra special blessing in my Catholic family. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was the, the little surprise at the end. Um, <laughs> but my dad was a, a, a very avid golfer. Uh, so the point of uh, many of our family road trips, almost all of our family road trips, was to get my father out of the Wisconsin winter and to a warm, sunny golf course somewhere in the south as fast as humanly possible. So we almost always traveled south, usually to the Gulf Coast, a lot around the New Orleans area, uh, also in the Florida Panhandle. You know, we did make it to, to Walt Disney World shortly after it opened in 1971. I think we made it there in 1974. Uh, and then Gradually, uh, you know, I mean, basically what what dictated where we traveled was usually uh, it was uh, the, the coupons that my dad would find in the back of his golf magazines from these golf resorts, uh, you know, trying to, to get um, uh, prospective buyers to come down and, you know, consider buying a, a condominium or, or just vacation down at their new golf resort. So... <laughs> That was in large part what, what, what dictated our, our destinations. Later in the 70s, uh, we started branching out and going east more more towards places like the Gettysburg Battlefield, Washington, D.C., Savannah, Georgia. Um, but we really rarely traveled west of the Mississippi River. Hmm. Explain how your mother would try to keep all of you entertained in the car during these long trips. Yeah. Well, she would have something that she called the game bag. Uh, and the game bag was filled with, you know, all sorts of little uh, diversions and games. And, you know, of course, especially for me, being by far the youngest and the most likely to cause trouble during uh, our family travels. But we would have like those little um, those little uh, games with the ball bearings that you try to navigate, you know, through a maze to a, you know, to an end spot or uh, the game called Wooly Wooly which was a, you know, a cartoon face covered by a plastic bubble, and then you used a magnet to carry over those, those uh, black metal shavings and try and create you know, mustaches and beards and afros on, on Wooly Willy. Those were all entertaining. Uh, but, of course, as I went, and there'd also be comic books in there. Um, but, of course, what I really look forward to and what, what was my favorite was, uh, of course, that Mattel electronic football game that became such a phenomenon uh, you know, in fact, that was named as one of Time Magazine's all-time 100 gadgets of all time. It sold millions and millions of units. So I think just about everybody my age, I'm turning 50 later this year, uh, just about everybody my age or within a few years of my age who owned one of those Mattel Electronic uh, football games at one point or another. Hmm. You uh, you write at one point, my father was one of those people born with a no-stop gene. He yeah. always had to be on the go, always had to be doing something. And uh, and you said my dad's disposition made him ill-suited for 15 to 20-hour road trips. <laughs> well, yeah, and and especially once they brought down the, the national maximum speed limit to just 55 miles an hour, of course, in the 70s. And that, that of course, was a result of the first uh, OPEC oil crisis. That was a move by the Nixon administration 
to try and help America conserve gasoline when they, you know, they anticipated that, that oil would be in short supply. And boy, traveling 55 mile an hours, miles an hour would drive my dad nuts because, you know, of course, you know, just a few years previously, he traveled these same highways at 70, 75 miles per hour. Uh, my dad was all about what he called making time while out on the highway. It was about getting to that day's destination as fast as humanly possible. And really, Greg, there was no point. There was no point for us to have to get to a certain destination uh, as fast as possible or to go as far as we could on any given day. He just wanted to prove it could be done and do it. So my father was not the type to... Uh, to, to make any unnecessary stops. And when, when I say unnecessary stops, uh, you know, he would ignore our pleas that we had to go to the, use the restroom. Uh, he would sometimes skip meals, you know, as it approached lunchtime, he would kind of subtly turn up the heat in the car and turn down the radio and create those nice conditions where everybody might kind of drop off into a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, we'd wake up hours later having skipped lunch. Um, but yeah, my dad was, uh, all about making time. I think, uh, I think many, many dads of that era, uh, were, were much like my father. Right. One of the ways in which you would survive those long trips in which the, uh, meal stops were very, uh, infrequent was yeah. that before you would leave, you would, uh, ride your bicycle to Phillips pharmacy yeah. and, uh, tell our listeners the kind of things that, uh, you would buy at Phillips pharmacy that would make these uh, road trips more bearable for you. Oh yeah. You know, I, I got used to how my dad did things. So yeah, I was, I was always sure to, uh, stock up on my, uh, own provisions that I could, uh, use to, you know, fortify myself while out on the road. So I would stop by Phillips pharmacy in Elm Grove and I'd stop stock up on things like Reggie Jackson bars. They were called Reggie bars back then, uh, basically a ripoff of the baby roof, but like in a small hockey puck shape. <laughs> um, of course, a big bag of Twizzlers would tide you over for a long time. I was always sure to get uh, bubble gum, bubble yum, and, and hubba bubba at that time um, because they had the longest, uh, you know, uh, they could keep me satisfied the longest. You could, you know, blow bubbles and and uh, chew on gum for hours on end, of course, if you, if you had to. Uh, we had wax candy bottles. Pop Rocks, of course, were were uh, some of the big candy in, in that day. Um, and just, uh, boy, just, uh, you know, all sorts of great candy. Oh, and then, of course, my favorite uh, were the candy cigarettes that you could buy back then. And, you know, I, I'd often... Uh, be traveling either up on the rear window ledge of my dad's, you know, luxury land yachts, or in the way back in that pop-up seat of my family station wagon, and I'd have, uh, you know, one of those candy cigarettes sticking out of my mouth. And you should have seen some of the double takes that I got from the drivers and passengers and cars who would, uh, you know, pass us by on the highway, thinking they're looking at an eight or ten-year-old kid with a lucky strike sticking out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're uh, you you talk at one point about uh, sometimes what would occur on these road trips would be uh, what you call the Battle of E. Yes. <laughs> this involved uh, whether or not to stop for gas. <laughs> right. And, of course, well, it's, it, it's really interesting to think about how this was a very different matter back then versus what it is now, and, and also the fact that typically you were driving, uh, you were riding in an automobile, uh, that got about ten miles to the gallon. <laughs> right. So, right. so tell us yeah. a little more about the battle of the E and how that would be waged. Yeah, sure. Well, of course, as I mentioned, my dad was all about making time, so he wanted to make as few stops as humanly possible, so that we could make good time on our on our way to that day's destination, and that included stretching every tank full of gasoline to the absolute last drop, because again, he didn't want to have to make any more stops than necessary. So his big claim, he swore in his heart of hearts uh, that the way uh, automotive engineers uh, calibrated things, that there was 40 miles worth of gasoline left, even when the low fuel light came on or the needle hit E. And so uh, <laughs> this would often get us uh, you know, into considerable trouble out on the highways because there just weren't the number of, of exits with service stations that are, there are, of course, today. 
And in, in particular, there was one chain in the south and southeast known as Stuckey's that would really get us into trouble because Stuckey's was known to have about 50 billboards for each one of its locations out on the highways. Uh, and most Stuckey's at that time offered gasoline. So they'd advertise that fact on their billboards, you know, great food, great gas, come to Stuckey's. And so, you know, we would be approaching E or at E, and, you know, of course, right then we would see a, a Stuckey's billboard, and my dad would say, oh, no problem. We can still, you know, travel 25 miles or 30 miles, uh, however far it was, to this next Stuckey's, and we'll get our gas, and we'll be just fine. Well, the only problem was, as, uh, as the years went on into the late 70s, many of these Stuckey's started going out of business, they were the victims of the fast food, the rise of the fast food chains like McDonald's and Wendy's, who offered faster drive-through service, um, which uh, appealed more to families um, than than the table service offered at places like you know Howard Johnson's and Stuckey's. Uh, so many of these Stuckey's started going out of business, uh, and the only problem was their billboards remained up. So we'd be following these billboards. Uh, you know, in hopes of getting to this location as we're, we're basically cruising on fumes. Uh, and so we'd follow the billboard off and, you know, and exit only to find that that particular Stuckey's had been long out of business uh, or some of the Stuckey's simply stopped offering gas during America's uh, fuel crisis. Uh, so, of course, and, you know, <laughs> there you are stuck at a closed Stuckey's, basically out of gas and hoping that you can find another service station very closely down the road. Those were some nervous moments in our cars many, many times. Right. And, of course, we're talking about a, an era when there was no such thing as a cell phone. And, of no, course, now funny. we can't, can't, can't even imagine driving across the country without a cell phone, but such a thing just simply didn't exist. And, of course, yeah. when it would come to matters like uh, car trouble, mm-hmm. uh, that you were also in, 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 a, in a predicament that we just can't uh, imagine nowadays. Uh, one of the things you mention in your, in your book that is rapidly vanishing uh, from our highway system that hasn't mm-hmm. gone all together uh, are the so-called SRAs, safety mm-hmm. rest areas. First of all, Correct. explain why they were called that and explain their importance then and and why so many of them have now disappeared. Mm-hmm. Well, it was the rest areas along America's interstate highway system that were called the safety rest areas. Uh, and that name should tip off exactly why they were included. Uh, of course, um, they were they were there for motorists in case they suffered mechanical difficulties and could get off the road and you know have a safe place to, for people to try and and fix their cars. Uh, they also offered kiosks that provided directions for drivers, and of course, they also offered basic public facilities, i.e., restrooms um, and picnic areas for family families. Of course, many families. Um, you know, we're traveling in areas of the country where there, there weren't uh, restaurants to be found. So they would pack their picnic lunches and you would simply get off the highway uh, and, and go have a picnic lunch together. And of course, you know, unfortunately, uh, many of those, those purposes have kind of become obsolete with the rise of technology, as you pointed out. Um, people no longer have to kind of fix their own cars. Now roadside assistance is only a phone call away. Uh, there's so many restaurants uh, catering to travelers along the interstates now that people aren't really packing their their picnic lunches anymore, and um, and of course our cars are are much more reliable, so we don't have to worry about having to pull off and you know uh, replace fuses or or belts if you have that ability or uh, add coolant to the radiator. We just don't do those things anymore, and so the unfortunately many of these rest areas are kind of becoming obsolete and that they're vanishing from uh, from you know existence hmm. I want to make sure we take just a, a moment or two to talk about uh, first of all well actually I think we'll just leave it to our listeners to explore what you say in terms of America in this era the 50s and 60s into the 70s having a huge fascination with the West and with mm-hmm. the old West and how so many things existed that sort of had that motif of of the old west uh yeah. including hotels and restaurants and so on and but you also spend some time uh, in your chapter called time to pass talking about uh some of the intriguing strange tourist attractions that sprang up all over the country uh yeah. 
and and uh, you can maybe pick a couple of your favorites to talk about, but I hope that one of those will be the battle for the world's largest ball of twine, yeah. which is a fascinating story. Yeah, isn't it, though? Yeah, I mean, just a few of the ones that I call out in my book are, you know, the thing in Texas Canyon, Arizona, where they build up everyone's expectations about the mystery of what the thing is, and, you know, they allude to it being some kind of mysterious creature that was dug up somewhere, and and uh, so leading into Texas Canyon, Arizona, uh, along the highways from every direction, there are about 200 billboards uh, posted trying to get people to stop at this thing, and of course, uh, what people actually find may or may not live up to all the hype. Uh, another great one was the mystery spot in Santa Cruz, California. And that was, you know, a, a man by the name of George Prather uh, went out and went out for a hike. And supposedly his compass started acting all funny. And he came across like a, a, a vortex on a hillside out there. And he winds up building a, a, a cabin out there that where supposedly gravity is defied and you know, people would go into this cabin and they could stand at all these funny angles that appeared to de- defy gravity and balls would roll uphill. Uh, and this place became world famous. It was featured in Life magazine and, and on television shows at that time. And of course, as it turned out, is that he just built a, built a, a cockeyed cabin on the side of a hill and people had no horizon uh, as a reference. So it just appeared that, you know, all these things were, were, were defying gravity and whatnot. Uh, now, the story that you're talking about, about the world's largest ball of twine, you know, I think a lot of fathers joked about, you know, making the family stop to go see the world's largest ball of twine. But there were actually two competitors. There were two competing world's largest ball of twine, balls of twine, one in Cocker City, Kansas, and another uh, in Darwin, Minnesota. It was actually the one in Minnesota that was started first by the name of uh, a, man, a man by the name of Francis Johnson, who was the son of a Minnesota se- uh, senator. Uh, for reasons that are lost to history, uh, Mr. Johnson just began winding up spare ends of sisal twine in 1950, and soon he had a, a, a giant ball. It began to get some notoriety and made the papers, uh, and this caught the attention of another man named Frank Stober, in, who lived in Cocker City, Kansas. And for whatever reason, Stober was de- determined to, to wind up a ball that was even bigger than Johnson's. Uh, so despite uh, Johnson having a three-year head start, Stober wound furiously, and by the 1970s, he caught up and surpassed the size of Johnson's ball. This caught the attention of the Guinness Book of World Records, and Stober's ball was declared the the world's largest at that time. Uh, A few years later, however, Stober would pass away, and Johnson, not wanting to be outdone, kept winding his ball. So (laughs) he kept winding uh, and finally caught Stober's ball and surpassed Stober's ball, uh, and then all of a sudden, Johnson's was once again declared the world's largest uh, ball of twine. Well, that didn't sit well with the people from Cocker City, Kansas. So they decided to make Stober's ball available to the public. And for, for tourists, you know, they kind of set it up as a tourist attraction where uh, tourists could actually participate in the continued winding up of that ball. So it became this big heated rivalry between the people in, in these two cities. Uh, to create the world's largest ball. Now, Johnson's uh, ball was actually left exactly as it was upon his death in the 1980s. So that remains the largest ball rolled up by a single man, and it was left untouched. And, of course, the Cocker City ball was was added to by uh, tourists and and people who came to Cocker City, Kansas. And, of course, that one did eventually uh, get bigger than Johnson's ball. And the crazy part is, there's like four other competitors besides these two gentlemen that have come around. Uh, one, I think, in Branson, Missouri, uh, and another one in some unpronounceable city in Wisconsin. I forget where. But <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's pretty funny how, uh, how, yeah, there's like six competitors for the world's largest ball of twine. <laughs> it's important to some people, I guess, and it actually makes me hope that one of these days my world travels will will take me across the path of one of these huge uh, twine balls. Yeah. At any rate, your your book explores so many other things, including uh, the eventual emergence of the seatbelt 
and yeah. that long, long battle mm-hmm. for seatbelts and airbags yeah. and so on. It, you you talk about the uh, the rise and eventually the demise of the station wagon, which is almost uh, never mm-hmm. seen anymore, about right. the big campaign to kind of clean up our highways and so on. And eventually what draws all of this, in a sense, to a close, the heyday of the, of the, the great uh, automobile vacation when uh, when airplane fares come down drastically and lead people to do much more flying, you write, once upon a time, a trip to California might as well have been a voyage to Mars. But uh, thanks to uh, airplane travel becoming so much more uh, affordable due to deregulation, now we just don't pile into our cars for these long trips like we once did. What are you doing with your own family? Do you find yourself trying to sustain this uh, practice with your own uh, wife and, and children? Oh, absolutely. And I'm making up for all those lost experiences that my family did not do while I was growing up. So I mentioned earlier that you know when I was growing up, my family predominantly traveled east of the Mississippi. Now with my present family, we're, we're almost exclusively heading west. So we're going out to, you know, to places like Yellowstone and Yosemite and Custer's uh, Battlefield. Uh, out out west and and going to all those uh, great traditional uh, road stop road trip stops like the Corn Palace and the Badlands and uh, uh, Wall Drug and the Minuteman Missile Museum. So uh, that's what what's occupying a lot of our road trips these days. But um, you know it's very interesting because there's substantial evidence that people are now coming back to the road trip and millennials in particular because they're simply fed up with the hassles. Uh, associated with air travel now of course it's gotten uh, much more expensive in recent years Uh, there's all these unexpected delays and cancellations you have to get to the airport uh, you know so many hours before your flight time especially if you're checking luggage and you can't bring your drinks anymore Uh, and so uh, there's there's evidence pointing uh, to the fact that people are, are fed up with it and they're looking for alternatives they're starting to rediscover the benefits, the practical benefits of road travel. Hmm. Uh, and it's it's my hope that they also come back to realizing that the road trip was meant to be this shared experience, right? It's meant to, for, you know, to be shared with all uh, families interacting with each other and playing games and making these discoveries and facing these challenges uh, that can only happen to families when they're traveling through America on a road trip rather than over it on an airplane ride. Right. You write towards the end of the book, yet those of us of a certain age will recall that it wasn't so long ago that beginning a family road trip felt a lot like setting off into the wild frontier. The book, again, is Don't Make Me Pull Over, an informal history of the family road trip published by Scribner, the author Richard Rattay. Richard Rattay, I loved your book. It just brought back a host of wonderful memories that I had almost completely forgotten. And I suspect for a lot of people, they will enjoy your book for the very same reason. And for people for whom uh, they are too young to remember any of this uh, or to have ever experienced this, uh, it will be a really eye-opening experience for them. So I hope a lot of people will seek this out. I hope people will laugh a lot, of course, but I know that they're also going to learn a lot. I know I did in the research for this book. It was completely fascinating to me, and hopefully other, other readers out there will find it fascinating as well. So thank you so much. Glad to have you.